Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, George, for that. If uh, you have not done so already, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter uh, here in chapter 2, as we'll be delving into that this morning. And have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Have you ever contemplated what God has been calling you to do? Well, you might not know this, but Peter has already answered those questions for us. We just might not like what he has to say. But before we get into that, though, I, I want us to look at some context. And as I suggested a, a few weeks back, uh, to have you guys keep reading through First Peter as us elders are, are each preaching through it in this Living Hope elder-led sermon series. There are phrases and, and, and themes that Peter keeps circling around to drive home his point of what the Living Hope is and how it is to f- affect our outlook on life and change the way we interact with the world around us. And so this is the context First two verses in First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benthania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, just right before our passage. But you... Are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As Don pointed out last week, this is not something that we only do on an individual basis, but as a church, we are to keep our conduct honorable. That is, by the good that we do, in the end, the world will honor God. They will recognize His goodness through our goodness. It is with this in mind that Peter then states in chapter 2, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I'm going to make a confession here. I'm, I'm glad I'm preaching this now and not a, a couple years back in 2020. I do not envy anyone who had to preach such a word during those tumultuous year with the infighting concerning safety measures and governmental overreach and the escalating hostility and the cries for justice regarding George Floyd. However, I know that some of that tension still resides in the hearts of many. and I can feel, I can sense people squirming in their seats at the thought of being subject to every human institution. I can hear the butts. But what about when fill in the blank? Well, we'll get to that, I promise. There's qualifiers, yes, so, so hold on. But I, I think we need to ruminate here in verse 13 for just a little bit longer. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. When Peter wrote this letter, it was the emperor Nero who was over the Roman Empire. And although he most likely did not begin his persecution of Christians that he is famous for, he had not yet quite set fire to Rome to blame it on the Christians so that he could justify murdering them. But tensions were rising. You see, Peter probably wrote this letter sometime in the early 60s, not the 1960s, (laughs) just 60s. (laughs) But he did so before 64. And, And in AD 70, the Roman Empire, they besieged Jerusalem. They invaded the city and destroyed the Jewish temple. That means anywhere from from six to eight years, a short, brief six to eight years after Peter wrote this letter, the Roman Empire thought it necessary to put troops in the streets to squelch the dissent 
and uprisings. You know, 10 to 15 years ago, I thought would think that something like that would be far removed and far distant from anything we would experience here in the U.S. I'm not so sure anymore. After the past four to eight years, I would not be surprised if at some point our government decides to put troops in the streets to squelch uprisings and dissenters. It's in that active and growing tension that Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I can sense that but again. Here, Peter says the role of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The purpose of government is to maintain order. It is to to meter justice. But what if they've got it backwards, right? What if they praise evil and punish good? What about that qualifier? We'll get there. Just bear with me. Like I said, I think we need to remain in verse 13 just a little bit longer. And our, our first point to write down this morning is coming from it. Be submissive to cultural order. Be submissive to cultural order. Peter's every human institution. It, it, it can be translated creature or creation. It's a, it's a hyperlink back to Genesis 1 where God created order and chaos. Peter is wanting to recall our mind back when a time when God created order from chaos. And where he established that which is good from the dysfunction and unity of previous states. And each time that God did create order from chaos, he called it good. God gave light to the darkness and called it good. God gave form to the chaos waters with land and called it good. God filled the void of the seas and lands with plants that can multiply and he called it good. And in the three realms, the sky, the water, and the land, God made creatures to live and multiply and called it good. And then God made humanity to be his image bearers and had to have dominion over all the earth, and he called it very good. He gave us the privilege and responsibility of self-rule. He said, whatever you do here on earth, I will allow, but I've got one caveat. Don't take this path over here, this path of, of death and destruction and chaos, because you won't like what you become. But take this path that I've, I've set out before you and I've laid out before you and I've emulated to you to be creations of order and peace. But what do we do? We looked over here and we thought this path looks like to give us the even more control. That we can determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. That we can, we can be gods and we can, we can craft and fashion this world after our own image and not God's. Peter calls this the way of darkness. And he calls this God's marvelous light. 
He holds up the pathway of order and peace, so much so that later he tells us to pursue peace, to chase after it. And in his text here, he states that wherever there is order, wherever there is authority, that we are to be subject to it, to be submissive to cultural order. For God placed us on this earth to cultivate order and peace, every human institution. We have governors, right? State governors. We have the Supreme Court. We have bosses and executives and HR. Kids, you have your parents and teachers and school administrators. Peter tells us to be submissive to authority. You know, this isn't just a hard text to preach. This is a hard text to live. I do not like people telling me what to do. Especially if, if they know less about a subject than I do. That if they come to me and I've developed this, this system and, and this philosophy around an idea and I've, I've fully thought about all that it can be about and they come in with X and Y and tell me what to do and, and they clearly have not thought about it as much as I have. If their logic doesn't line up with my logic, then, then they can just walk on and they can take their perspective with them. Kids, let me tell you something. When you tell your teachers that in school, they're not happy. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the hall and the principal's office and in school. I had one teacher so baffled because I, I, I spent so much time in the hall, and yet every time that it came to a test or, or an exam, I would ace it. That's because I'm an auditory learner, and I could still hear her from outside. <laughs> so the information still just goes... But you know that fed into my passions and my flesh, my rebellious heart. Giving me justification that I do not need to heed their authority when I can rely on my own talents, my own perspective, my own agenda. But what if our perspective's right? Can I disobey authority then? This is hard to be submissive to cultural order. Like I said, I think we need to ruminate here in verse 13 a good while. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I want to point out a phrase here, that, and I, I don't want us to gloss over it as, as we often can. He says, for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. We are not to be in subjection for our own sake, but the Lord's. And although God has established government for the metering of justice and order, we are not commanded to be subject to it so that we can benefit from it. We do not submit to cultural order so that we can receive justice. Therefore, we should not be surprised when justice fails. In the created order of government, the Lord has given us his creation bearers the freedom of self-rule and just like everything else we tend to mess it up when it does mess up our response our response as christ likens is not to respond with the sword but with the power of god's grace 
We do not respond with malicious intent, envious of power or influence, slandering our opposition in deceitful rhetoric. No, we respond by doing good. That they may see our good deeds which proclaim his excellencies. That in the end they will honor God as good. But for now, when opposition maligns us and it calls our truth injustice, we let our good deeds shut them up. Look at verse 15 with me. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Write this down as uh, your, your point for 1A. Proclaiming wisdom in doing good. Be submissive to cultural order by proclaiming wisdom in doing good. I asked if you all ever wanted to know God's will for your life. Well, here it is. You ready? Do good. Do good. Not, not be good. Peter's not telling us that we need to be pleasant. Peter's not telling us that we need to be nice, that we need to be friendly, that we need to smile at more people. Peter's not telling us that we need to pass it forward by paying for some random stranger's meal in the drive-thru. I'm not saying that those are bad or not good. It's just not the goodness that Peter is talking about here. Those are okay things to do. Praying for those who persecute you. Loving your enemies. Those are good deeds. Covering the physical needs of someone lying on the road, left for dead, even though they are culturally and economically different than you are. That's a good deed. Think about this. What is the likelihood of someone praising God in the end when he's judging all things... Thinking back, remembering that time when someone randomly smiled at me in Walmart and thinks, boy, God was good to me on that day. Sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Like I said, I'm not saying that these are not good. They're just not the goodness Peter's referring to. Acts of kindness that go way beyond simple gestures of regard. What good are you doing? Harvest Decatur, as a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, what good are we doing as a church? Jesus told his disciples that they would do greater things. They wanted to be able to do the, the miracles that he was doing. They wanted to be able to affect and change people's lives the way he was doing it. And Jesus said, you will do greater things than these. What can be greater than giving sight to the blind? What can be greater than, than healing someone so completely that they not only gain function, but they're able to, to integrate back into their community and be a part of their community again? What's greater than bringing someone dead back to life? The greater is not in the show of power, but in the submission of doing good for another. 
The greater is working the restorative nature of the gospel into someone's life by entering into their chaos and walking with them in the pursuit of peace together. Jesus placed more value on the sacrifice of our time, effort, skills to develop, equip, and encourage and uplift another than he does any show of miraculous power. What good are we doing? Are we helping others to flourish in life? Are we providing food for those that need food? What are we doing to create healing and hope in people's lives? Are we providing medical care when someone's health is broken? Are we offering friendship when others are alone and despondent? Are we giving them the words of life when they are on a path destined for destruction? Or are we providing platitudes that are more about our own sense of self-worth? Do we care about preaching the gospel because it it says we're better Christians? Do we care about feeding the poor because it, it says that we're better people? If our good deeds are focused on what they say about us, then they're not the good deeds that will silence the foolish. Rather, we have become the fools. Be submissive to cultural order by proclaiming wisdom and doing good. What good are we doing? Qualifiers. I said I would get to them. The buts, the what ifs, right? Well, what if the city of Decatur tells us not to meet as a church anymore? What are we going to do? Submit to cultural order and disband? Submit to a higher authority and rebel? Keep meeting? What if the police show up one Sunday and make arrests? Still keep meeting in defiance because it's the right thing? Sometimes the what ifs, they stir up in our passions of our flesh. We could go underground like the church did in the first century persecution. They kept meeting in secret, in houses, in in small groups. Yet still with arrests and executions, the movement became so large and influential that the Emperor Constantine made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. Our faith is so much more than just gathering. What good are we doing Be submissive to cultural order by proclaiming wisdom in doing good, but also by proclaiming freedom in doing good. Write this down as our point 1B, proclaiming freedom in doing good. Look at me at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Like I said, the the what-ifs, they can tend to stir up in us the passions of our flesh. So what if the government has it wrong? What if they're not upholding justice? What if they are praising evil and punishing good? What do we do? Do we let it stand? Do we let it go unaddressed? Or do we do something about it? Do we rise up and let our voices be heard? Do we stand for truth and justice and for God? Does God really 
need us to fight his enemies for him? Peter says that this passion, this zeal, this rebelliousness is not a display of freedom. He's telling us to not hold out on on these issues waiting for the government or the culture or your parents or your boss or even your spouse and your friends to cross a line in the sand that you've drawn so you can say, this is it. I won't allow this to go any further. You've gone too far. He's telling us not to hold in our heart This desire to jump at the chance to exercise our freedom in the Lord, declaring that I don't have to listen to you anymore. I don't have to do what you say because my allegiance is to God. Tell me not to gather. Guess what I'm going to do? Tell me not to pray in public. Guess what's coming? Tell me to turn down my music. Well, guess what? I'm going to play it louder because it's Christian music, and I don't care if you're the new superintendent of the school. I know what my rights are as a student in the public school system, and I will stand up for it, and I will say that you have no authority to say to me anything because I know my rights, and I know That when it comes to matters of faith, any student-led initiative, you can't say or do anything about it. Mic drop. Sadly, that's a true story. And at the football game that night, there was a a Millican student teacher who at times joined into the Bible study I was leading before school. And I was so excited to tell him how bold I was and how I stood up for the faith against the, the naturalistic and atheistic school system. And his response was nothing but the pure conviction of the Spirit. He looked at me and said, okay. And went back to watching the football game. I used my freedom as a cover-up for my rebellious heart. Peter says, dude, your music is just loud and disruptive. And it's not proclaiming Christ the way you want it to. Neither is your heart. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for of God. In the passions of our flesh, when we want to jump at any moment to rebel in God's name, who is actually being served? The will of God is that we do good. And in doing good, we proclaim wisdom and freedom. But when we act out of malice and rebelliousness, we serve ourselves and the pathway of darkness. Rather, we are to do good. We are to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We are to honor everyone, for we are all created in God's image. We are to love the brotherhood, to do good, especially to those in the household of faith. We are to fear God, not him who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell Do you realize how terrifying God is? Not his person. God is not terrible. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithful to all generations. But his existence, 
His existence is terrifying. Before there was anything, there was God. And everything only exists because God wills it to be so. There's an interesting fact that resides in Genesis 1.1 where we read in the beginning, the Hebrew text, it does not contain the article the. And a, a, a ultra-literal translation would be in beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The the is included in English so we can read it better. And it certainly does mean that this is the starting point of time and space. And it means that, that all that the, the matter that is there was created from non-matter in what theologians call ex nihilo. Yet there's a flow of thought too that God, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, has in his mind the sustaining power of all reality. That we were created out of his imagination. And in a sense, we are created in God, who is the beginning of all things. We are created in him, in his reality. If, if he were to cease to exist, so would we. There is no reality apart from the reality of God. Therefore, at, at any point, if God decided to undo your existence, everything that is connected to you would be gone. You'd be gone. And no one would be the wiser to you have ever existing. I think this is part of what Jesus was, was, was alluding to in the garden when he said all things are possible with God. God holds everything in his mind, in his, his will, in his existence. It is all there. And if at some point he decides something to not be there, it won't be there. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? So yeah. Don't be afraid of only that which can cause bodily harm and death, but be terrified of that which can eradicate even the thought of you. And honor the emperor, who at this time was Nero. And although Peter did not know it, the spirit who inspired him to write these words knew that Nero would soon be unworthy of honor. So yes, honor everyone and be submissive to cultural order, even when they do not deserve it. This brings us to our second point this morning. Be submissive to Christ-like suffering. Be submissive to Christ-like suffering. Take a look back with me at verses 18 through 19 here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter says to do good regardless. Now, I want to take some time to carefully examine some cultural realities that existed both for them and for us today and, and look at see what we have. This word translated servant, it has to do with a house slave, much of kind of how we would figure a, a slave working in a home back in the day. But I want to be careful here because we have a history 
with the word slave that is not favorable to our understanding of what Peter is talking about here. And as such, it requires some cautious examination and explanation of what's being communicated. And I want to be clear that in no way is, is Peter giving any justification for what our view of slavery is. And in no way am I looking to, to qualify Scripture or, or to, to cover for Scripture and trying to justify the inclusion of slavery in this text. What I aim to do is to help us to see the, the similarities and the differences between their economic system and our economic system and what admonition First Peter has for us regarding it. So as a, a starting point, there is a presumption that systems of authority, in which case a slave's master would be one, is to operate out of the praise for those who do good. The scripture's claim on government and economic providers is that they are to meter justice and not be repressive. This is an assumed ethic Peter and his readers hold. But the reality is, is not everyone lives up to those ethics, right? Thus, Peter's inclusion of this particular ethical admonishment for his servants. Furthermore, the Bible does not condone the selling of people into slavery, and it's not silent on it either. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy when he said that the law is good for lawless and disobedient, naming murderers and those who are sexually deviant along with enslavers. That's those who kidnap and sell into slavery. This was a practice that was happening in the Mediterranean. The Bible is clear. It's evil. It's wrong. So all that said, the Roman economy was highly dependent upon slaves, most of whom were born into it. They were either uh, ancestors were, were brought into slavery through, through war and conquest, or they were brought into slavery through volunteer means. If their debt became so large and they were either facing prison or death, they could choose to go into slavery and serve out their debt that way. But yes, sadly, people who were slaves were viewed as property. However, they were not considered as inferior simply because they were slaves. They were not considered to be less human simply because they were slaves. In fact, there were many who were free but poor, and they had less social status than those who were slaves and economically well-off. And the labor that slaves provided and performed, it was not just grueling, menial work. Many were bankers accountants, managers, and slaves could purchase their freedom. I think the illustration that Jesus uses to communicate the requirement of multiplying grace can give us a, a fairly clear picture of how slavery worked. We've got a manager who owns his master a debt, money, like a zillion dollars, more than he'll ever be able to pay off, right? And his master forgives his debt. Wipes it clean. So for this man, for the first time in his life, he has the opportunity to buy his freedom. And so what does he do? He goes out to his servants. He goes to his slaves. And he makes them pay him what he has. The moral of the story is that that manager 
was shown grace by his master, and he should have multiplied that grace to his servants as well. The lesson we learn from it is the grace and peace that we receive from God. We are to be multiplying grace and peace to others. But for our purposes here, this morning, he was a slave that owned slaves. He was given tasks and he was able to to procure others who would be his property, part of his net worth, to be able to complete some of that work. And if he made enough profit to support both his master as well as put some aside for himself, which is legal, then he could eventually buy his freedom. But as it was, someone else told him what to do and when to do, when to get up. Someone else told him what he would be doing for the better portion of his day. And until he earned enough money to support himself independently, this is what he would be doing for a long time, if not for the rest of his life. Now, show of hands, when it comes to us, how many of you, generally speaking, are told when, you can get, or when to get up and start your day? How many are, are told what you're going to be doing for the better portion of your day? And how many of you are going to be doing that for the rest of your life or until someone else takes care of you? <laughs> You know, here in Illinois, we are a, a uh, at-will state, meaning you can, you can gain employment and be terminated from employment at-will. And no reason, no cause, just because. Both parties agree to, to, to work and, and be in partnership that way, then it's fine. But at some point, you want to sever it and move on. That's, that's all good. Right? That's Illinois. If we had contracted employment to where you entered into a contract and you are required to fulfill these obligations, that's more closely in line with what was happening in their economic system with a few other things. And yes, slavery led to many tragedies, as does any economic system that runs contrary to God's word. The question Peter is asking is, what do we do when as someone who is under such economic and authoritative system is faced with injustice? Peter's addressing the buts, the what-ifs. What if evil is praised and good is punished? Like I said, this is not the justification of such action, but it's a calling for us as disciples of Christ in how we are to live among those who do not know Christ. This is, as Peter will make a case for in the following verses, a Christ-likeness to be lived out In our lives. Take a look again at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is grace. When subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, being mindful, knowing it is for his sake that we endure, that we continue to do good regardless while suffering injustice. What is more Christ-like than that? Write this down as point 2A. Be submissive to Christ-like suffering by proclaiming grace in doing good. Proclaiming grace in doing good. 
Here we are, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Does it matter if we are punished for doing wrong and endure the punishment? If someone were to mistreat a child and go to prison, and in prison they're beaten for the crime that they did, and, but, but they take it, they endure it, and they take it like a man, is that any credit or any virtue? Is there any value to that? No. If we jump at the chance to rebel and suffer the consequences for it, is that of any value or virtue to us? But if in the course of proclaiming the kingdom of God in all that it entails, offering healing and hope to every human need, we are maligned, ridiculed, mistreated, slandered, then we will have received no better treatment than what Christ did. We will have received from the world what he said we would receive. He said that the world will hate us because it hates him. But we also receive from God what Jesus said we would receive. And that we will find favor with God. When we continue to do good regardless. In the presence of God he looks at us and he smiles and he calls us his children because we act like his son. We cannot earn our salvation, but gosh darn it, if this isn't the closest thing to coming to it, when we do good and suffer for it. In the face of injustice, when we continue to do good, we proclaim God's grace. I've been reminded a lot lately of all the the good that Jesus did, and yet he faced continual rejection. Everyone wanted to be near Jesus when he was healing the sick, when he was giving sight to the blind, when he was causing the lame to walk. They wanted to simply touch his robe and find healing. They wanted him to give a word and their circumstances would change. But when Jesus started preaching how they need to pick up their cross and follow him, When how to be a disciple, there needs to be a count of the cost. Not simply approach it giving no thought to what's going to be required of me as someone who goes to build a house, but then in the middle of it abandons the project because, oh, I ran out of materials. Jesus told them that their lives need to be lost, that they need to forfeit their will, and that their way and be crucified with him. So that he can live out his life through theirs. You know what they did then? They left. The gospel writers share once that that Jesus preached one of these types of messages. He lost many disciples that day. Jesus preached and half the crowd got up and walked off. But did he stop preaching? Did he stop healing? No. Jesus went to his hometown where where people knew him, where they, they loved him. 
but he couldn't do many miracles there because they did not believe that God was moving through them, through him. In their familiarity, they failed to see God at work. Did Jesus give up on his family? No. When he entered Jerusalem, there were people who were shouting and and praising and and extolling him uh, above everyone else. And then just a few short days later, they were shouting for him to be murdered. And on the cross, after being spat upon, ridiculed, shamed, and dehumanized, beaten, and tortured, Jesus looks out at the people and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do good. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Regardless is Christ-likeness. Be submissive to Christ-like suffering by proclaiming grace and doing good, but also by proclaiming living hope in doing good. Proclaiming living hope in doing good. This is our point 2B. Read along with me in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'd like to share a story with you, even though it's not my story. See, this letter that Peter wrote to the saints in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benthania is not without a sense of irony. In the face of injustice... Unfair treatment, false accusations, and authority overreach. Peter, Peter says be submissive. The gospel narratives are pretty descriptive of Peter. And for those of us who like to study personality types, he is definitely one to study. Always out front, first to act, first to speak, often before thinking through the details. He told Jesus, don't wash my feet. And and, and Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then he says, okay, do the whole thing, Lord. Do it all. Jesus says, Peter, please calm down. That's not what I mean. Bold, brave, brash. If there was action to be had, Peter was in on it. Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, yes, I want to do that. Tell me to come out there with you. Command the waves to hold my weight. And when Jesus was predicting his death, Peter told his rabbi, his master, that Peter wasn't going to have it over his dead body. Jesus told him during one of these times that, Peter, you're thinking like Satan on earthly things. And when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him, Peter said, never. I would die for you. Now, many of us know the story of the the twice-crowed rooster in Peter's three times denial and the fear Peter presented that evening. 
But I submit to you that it wasn't fear of harm or fear of death, but the fear of being unable to live out what Jesus was calling him to be. Peter said he would die for Jesus, and he had his chance to. In the garden, as hundreds of soldiers approached and stood at the ready with torches and swords, Peter, steadfast in his conviction and commitment to hold true to his claim, as soon as the first person gets close to Jesus, Peter strikes out with a sword, ready to take on anyone who threatens his Lord, ready to take on the whole army that came and said he will stand against you and he will die for Jesus. But then the most unimaginative, unbelievable, unexpected thing happened. Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. If that's going to be your purpose in life, you'll accomplish nothing other than that. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. But Peter, I have so much more for you. I have so much more for all of my followers. As they took Jesus away, Peter followed. As they questioned and insulted Jesus, Peter listened. As they struck Jesus in the face, Peter watched. And when they asked Peter, aren't you with him? He said, no, not with him. And they said, yes, you, you dress like him. You sound like him. And Peter said, no, I don't, I don't sound like him. I don't look like him. I said, yes, we saw you in the garden with him. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. I was not with that man. That man sitting there, submitting to this human institution as he suffers injustice. And at that point, the second crow, Jesus looks at Peter in the eyes. Peter melts away in shame. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter witnessed these things firsthand. And he tells us that Jesus did this as an example for us to follow. That Jesus was the suffering servant, so we likewise would be suffering servants. But our suffering, our dying to self and living to Christ, our dying to sin and living to righteousness, is the living hope present with us. That in the resurrection, he will bring us into the fullness of Christ's presence to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that will wipe away and make any suffering and opposition and injustice that we feel here and now pale in comparison. It is to this end that we have been called to do good regardless. To honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back on up to begin to prepare us for our last song. Qualifiers, right? I told you I would get there. I made a promise. Coming true on it. Yes, there are some. 
when there's a breaking point that develops between being obedient to the word in submitting to human institution and being obedient to the word in some other form or fashion of discipleship, we need to exercise wise counsel in discerning what the greater good is. But at no point should we strain a gnat to swallow a camel. When Elise, our youngest, was an infant, she got sick with fever. And Lorraine was giving her a bath to help her feel better. But then at some point, Elise uh, leaned forward and her, her face went into the water. And Lorraine pulled her back out of the water, but she wasn't responding. Lorraine, not quite knowing what to do, she called for me and I come in. And, and trying to, to quickly ascertain what Lorraine was communicating to me in, in, in her panic state and, and, and my panic state. And I, I tried to remember and recall infant CPR and apply that, but nothing, nothing happened. And quickly my mind is racing, looking to come up with a solution. And, and we literally live a block away from the hospital. And, and my mind says calling 911 and waiting for an ambulance to get here doesn't seem like a viable solution. And so I, I threw a towel and wrapped around her naked limp form. I got in my car and I held her in my lap and I drove one block to the hospital. The law says a child's to be in a, a secure restraint. The, the law says that nobody should be in public naked. <laughs> I broke the law that day. My conscience is clear and I would do it again. We do not strain a gnat to swallow a camel. We do not submit to human institutions simply because we're commanded to do so. We are submissive because in doing good, we proclaim wisdom, freedom, grace, and the living hope found only in Christ Jesus. So do good regardless. Harvest Decatur, do your passions lead you to proclaim God's grace while suffering injustice? Or do your passions lead you to fight in opposition to our enemies? Let's pray for the Lord's wisdom. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth contained in it. Thank you for the call on our lives to do good. We submit to you, our Lord Jesus, and how to do that and where to do that. Our lives are yours. We understand what you have asked of us and we give it to you. We submit it all. Thank you for your love and grace. Be with us as we part to be on mission for your glory and your name.